Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we continue today in our series of messages, preaching on tough texts, which takes us today to the book of Acts and chapter 5, a little encounter with a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and I, I sort of initially uh, advertised the reading as um, Acts 5, 1 to 11, but when I looked at it last night, I realised that we need to look at a little bit just prior to that to get the context of what's happening. Um, so I'm reading from chapter 4, verse 32, if you have a Bible or um, the Bible on your phone or something like that. So Acts 4, 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds, and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Let's see what happens if I say, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> are we really thankful for that particular reading? I'm not sure that we are. Michael Guglielmucci was an Australian pastor and songwriter who in 2006, after a trip to hospital, announced to his church that he was dying of cancer and began to display symptoms of severe pain, difficulty breathing, vomiting, hair loss, over a two-year period, he appeared to decline, often appearing in public with an oxygen tube attached to his nose. But then after two years, in 2008, Michael's father, Danny, 
who was the pastor of another church, publicly announced that his son had fabricated the cancer story. And for two years, perpetrated the illusion to cover his deep sense of failure because he was pastoring a church that was not growing and to create a diversion from a battle with pornography addiction with which he was wrestling. He lied to the church and he lied to the Holy Spirit. And as we consider that in the light of this particular reading from Acts 4 and 5, the question is, why didn't he drop dead? He may have wished he could, actually, given the shame of the circumstances that he, uh, he encountered. But I think it goes without saying that in Acts chapter 4, the events that we've read a few minutes ago occur very early within the life of the Christian church, a short time after the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, when God's Spirit was poured out on the believers animating and invigorating and empowering them to bear witness to Jesus. There are many wonderful things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But there's another side to the Spirit's work as well. It's not so much that there's a dark side to the Spirit's work, but rather part of the Holy Spirit's work is to deal with our dark side. And as Ananias and Sapphira found, that can sometimes be a little scary. But I want to just start by saying thank you that the Bible is honest about these things. I'm grateful for that. When Oliver Cromwell, the 17th century British military and political leader, commissioned a portrait of himself to be painted, the artist tactfully removed a number of quite ugly and unpleasant warts on Cromwell's face. When Cromwell saw the painting, in distress, shouted, Take that away, I want you to paint me warts and all, which is, of course, where that saying, warts and all, comes from in the popular vernacular. When we read the book of Acts, it's easy to develop, I think, an idealized image of the church. I mean, it all just sounds so good. So many people coming to faith, so many people having their lives transformed. But it's also a warts and all representation. We'll get to the warts in a moment. But before we do, let's just first ponder the good parts of the story. I think it's fair to say that when God enters a person's life, he tends to turn everything upside down. I wonder if you found that in your experience. In actual fact, God turns things the right way up, but it feels like they're upside down because we're so used to being upside down ourselves. And when things get turned upside down or isn't the right way up, I'm not sure, but we find the things that used to be at the top are now at the bottom, and the things that used to be at the bottom now are at the top. Our priorities get upended and that happened for the first generation of Christians. Before they saw the world from God's point of view, possessions and belongings and money were at the top of their priorities, as they are for many, many people. And if you don't believe in God, it sort of makes sense for that to be the case. Ernest Becker, the famous 20th century uh, sociologist, said, As belief in God and other traditional sources of immortality have eroded in Western culture. Money has assumed a godlike quality in our lives. It becomes our ticket to enduring significance in the face of death. We feel like if we have enough money, or if we have enough stuff, or if our house is big enough, if there's some testament, physical testament left to us after we go, then we perhaps have some significance in this world. <laughs> 
So if there is no God, then of course we would look to material possessions to try and establish our sense of identity and worth. That's a natural part of most people's thinking. We ask the question, don't we, what's a person worth? And normally when we ask that question, we're actually saying, how much do they earn? Or how much have they saved? Or if they sold all their assets, what would they get? If you believe in God, however, you realise that a person's worth has absolutely nothing to do with their earnings or their savings or their assets. The worth of a human being, the worth of a human life, is not determined by how much of the created order they can accumulate for themselves. It's determined by the opinion of the Creator, by the value that the Creator places on them. And I know this is a hopelessly cliched illustration, but hopefully it will at least serve the point. I want you to imagine two children. One is very well dressed in the latest fashion labels, and this child always has lots of toys and gadgets. They're always playing with the latest iPhone. But imagine, this is part of the cliche, imagine that this child sadly has parents who are usually too busy to spend time with them. Parents that don't really care that much for the child because they're busy with their own careers and assume that if they buy them lots of things, then they're expressing love for them. That's child number one. Child number two wears clothes that are slightly worn and slightly daggy. They have no Xbox or iPhone or access to Netflix. But their parents love them profoundly and spend time with them and prioritise them over pretty much everything else. Which of these two children, the question then rests, has the richer life? Which will grow up with a greater sense of worth? See, worth and value have nothing to do with possessions. They have everything to do with being valued and being cherished by those who have given us life. And that's the reality that the first Christians woke up to. Through Jesus' life and teaching, they realized that their creator is actually not this distant, uncaring, capricious deity, but a loving heavenly father who, who deeply cares about them, cares so much about them that he was willing to enter the mess of this world in the person of Christ and to lay down his life to restore the relationship between God and people that sin has broken. And if you get that, if you really understand how cherished you are by God, then all of a sudden our stuff suddenly becomes far less important than it was before. It goes from the top to the bottom. But at the same time, the people that we used to see ourselves competing with, the people we used to need to try and get ahead of and in front of in order to feel okay about ourselves, those people go from the bottom to the top because we start to see them as God sees them. God's children of infinite worth, people for whom Jesus died, people whom God loves. So your possessions go from the top to the bottom of the things that you value. People go from the bottom to the top. It therefore makes perfect sense that if you do see the world the way God sees it, if you share his values, then you will tend to use your possessions to help people. Far too many in this world use people to get possessions for themselves. But God says, no, no, in my economy, it's got to be completely different to that. Don't use people to get possessions. Use possessions to help people. And the first church was full of people who saw the world like that. 
Whenever members of the church were in need, other Christians would sell something, they would give the money to the apostles, the leaders of the community, and they would prayerfully and carefully distribute those resources to the people who were in need. And to illustrate what that generous giving looks like in practice, the author of Acts gives us an example of one individual who did give generously. His name was Joseph. He came from Cyprus, and he was one of those people who had the ability to lift the mood of a group. He lifted others up. He built others up with a lively gift of encouragement. And he did that so frequently that the believers nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a lovely nickname that is to have. William Arthur Ward once said, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you, but encourage me and I will never forget you. Because everybody needs encouragement. Behind every successful person in this world, there is another person who said to them, you should try this. You can do that. You can be more than you presently are. An encourager, you see, doesn't do things for another person. Rather, they give the other courage to do it themselves. And courage, of course, is doing what we're afraid to do. No courage required if you're contemplating something. Um, that's easy. But it was as scary for people in the first century to liquidate their assets and give the resources away as it would be for us today. So they needed some encouragement. But what a difference it makes when you see someone joyfully setting an example, joyfully making that sort of provision for others, not just by their words, but by their actions. And Barnabas was just such an encouragement. That is the good news of this passage. I said before, it's a warts and all representation of the church. So after all these wonderful descriptions of generous sharing and the positive example of Barnabas the encourager, we find ourselves fairly quickly coming down to earth with a very different example in Ananias and Sapphira. And I just want to say up front, this is a difficult story. It takes a bit of coming to terms to. I guess that's why it's a tough text. Ananias and his wife Sapphira were members of the first church. That's just important to, to, to keep in mind. They watched with awe, along with everyone else, at the amazing things the apostles did. They heard their powerful testimony. And they too were encouraged by the example of Barnabas. They had property they didn't need, a field to be precise, and they talked together and thought they should contribute that to the needs of others, just as Barnabas had. So they sold the field, but when they came and put the money at the apostles' feet, they conspired, the text says, and quite deliberately gave the impression they were giving everything that they'd got for the field, when in fact they withheld part of the sale proceeds for themselves. Now Ananias went first. He brought the money in, and Peter confronts him with the insight that we might presume could really only have come from perhaps a prophetic word or a word of knowledge, or perhaps someone in the know whispered in his ear. But with very strong words, he implies that Ananias is lying not so much to Peter, but to the Holy Spirit. He is very publicly and deliberately deceiving or attempting to deceive God. Now, he was under no pressure to sell the field. Let's be clear about this. 
The property and the money were his, and at his disposal, this wasn't an issue of greed. He was free to do with it whatever he wanted. But by pretending to give it all when he had it, he was lying to God. And Ananias is slain in the spirit. A little shout out there to all our Pentecostal friends. But he drops dead. If he was good looking, we might say this is a case of drop dead gorgeous. That didn't work at all. Anyway, it's on record, you know. It's on record that King Edward once blazed with anger with such fierceness at one of his courtiers that the man dropped dead on the spot, just from sheer fear. Is that why Ananias died here? Well, we don't know. But a few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in, unaware of what's happened, and Peter asks if the money given corresponds to the full price of the property sale, and she said, yes, yes. And Peter announces that she too is lying to the Holy Spirit, and that very soon her life will be required of her as well. And as we read this together in 2019, it seems a bit extreme, does it not? I mean, imagine if somebody fell down dead every time an untruth was uttered in church, every time an exaggeration was articulated, every preacher would be dead <laughs> without question. Would anyone be left? So how do we make sense of the narrative? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is come to a passage like this with a profound sense of humility. It feels just so presumptuous for me to say, hey, let me explain this passage to you. Let me tell you exactly what God was up to here, because I don't know exactly what God was up to. We can't know that for sure. I mean, I can throw a few ideas your way, and those ideas might be informed by the opinions of scholars who've spent a fair bit of time and thought uh, a lot longer than I have, you know, really wrestling with this particular issue. But the last thing I would ever want to do is to pretend to speak for God. All I can really do is make some observations. I think it was John Stott who said, if you think you've got God in a box in your mind, it's not God who's in the box. <laughs> so we have to approach a passage like this with a profound sense of humility. And rather than judging the passage through the limitations of our tiny brains and our small experience and our social and cultural bias, I think what we have to try and do is to let the passage, in a sense, judge us. If we read this passage with a godlike posture, we might quickly dismiss it out of hand as not fitting with our sensitivities and our expectations. But what happens if we allow the passage to read us? What does the passage say then? If I can just for a moment do a little recap of what Paul Jones so articulately said last week as he unpacked the story, see him nodding away there, the story of Moses encountering God, God threatening, God threatening to kill Moses. Um, Paul said, you know, it's pretty easy to, to preach about a, a passage that focuses on the love of God, that brings the warmth and the love and the positive regard of God to the hearer. But sometimes that's not what we need to hear. Sometimes it's a word of, I think Paul used the, the word justice. It's a word of justice or a word of judgment rather he used. And that can be a gift from God as much as a word of love and affirmation. Because a word of justice can be a gift of grace if it is the thing that we need to hear at that time. You see, it brings a different type of love. It brings a tough love because it comes as a word of truth. And we need to face up to the truth about ourselves. 
Now, a number of scholars try to make sense of this passage by pointing out how often in life examples are needed to help us learn an important truth. When I was a high school teacher, sometimes I would carefully and thoughtfully and appropriately use a student as an example so that all of the other students would learn a particular lesson as well as the student whom I was addressing. And initially that might seem a little bit unfair to single someone out. But if the lesson's a valid one, the pain of the learner is not only for their benefit but for the benefit of others as well. And the example of Ananias and Sapphira, whilst seeming extreme for them to be sure, nevertheless I think reminded the early Christians simply that God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be played with. God is not to be mocked. The Holy Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit of God. And you could argue that this example highlights something that we seem to struggle with as we let the text read us. We struggle with enormously in this day and age, and that is the difference between truth and falsehood. I mean, who takes lying seriously these days? For some people, it's a way of life. I'm just embarrassed because I uh, tried to make these guys, the Activate people, believe it was my birthday today. So, you know, I, I did it without... I did it, it was quite convincing to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we light the drop of a hat. In a study done in the US during the 1990s, it was revealed that 91% of those surveys admitted that they routinely lie about matters that seem trivial. And 36% lie about things they believe to be deeply important. 86% admitted lying to their parents, 75% to their friends, 73% to their siblings, 69% to their spouses. It's almost the case that we don't really expect people to tell the truth today. In fact, in a culture that so accepts lying as normal, and some people would say as necessary in order to get ahead, that we've renamed lying. We call it spin. We refer to stretching the truth. We talk about white lies. Austin O'Malley said those who think it permissible to tell white lies very quickly become colorblind. And maybe the message of the passage is that we don't hold truth with the same regard that God does. Jesus said, amongst many other things, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth, said Jesus. And if you don't take truth seriously, then you're going to find it very difficult to have a real and living encounter with Jesus. If you can't face the truth about yourself, it's going to be difficult to meet the truth. But there's something more here, I think, as well. I would contend that their action was not just about creating a lie, but they were also performing quite a serious act of idolatry. Because whilst claiming to follow and worship Jesus as Lord, their action is betraying that, in fact, they were worshipping another God themselves. I mean, think about it. Why were they lying? Because they wanted the community to think more highly of them than was true. They wanted to be like Barnabas. They wanted everyone to think that like others. They were sacrificially giving everything when in actual fact they weren't. In other words, other people's opinions of them were more important to them than the truth. The source of their value and their worth 
perhaps once had been in the love that God had expressed for them in Christ, that they'd experienced through the Holy Spirit. But now it seems the opinions of people were more cherished than God's affirmation. So they were willing to lie before God in order to create the illusion of their own piety in front of other people. They had stopped worshipping God in spirit and truth. They were now worshipping themselves and doing whatever was needed to make themselves feel good about themselves. They were the centre of their own universe, which is idolatry. And I suspect, I speculate, that God knew that if this sin was allowed to go unchecked, it would wreck the fledgling church. It would become like a cancer that would kill the integrity and the veracity, the truthfulness of the church's testimony to the resurrection. A church full of people worshipping themselves is no church at all. God simply cannot work in that sort of environment. Jesus perhaps decided that he simply couldn't allow Ananias and Sapphira to continue on earth and sow that sort of deception into the church just as it was getting going in such a fragile period of its life. So he spared the church and he took Ananias and Sapphira home. He saved them from continuing in their idolatry and he saved the church from their influence. Just as Jesus himself was a foretaste of the resurrection life that God would bring to bear in the future, so Ananias and Sapphira, we might say, experienced a foretaste of that refining justice that God will bring to bear in our lives at the end of the age. Jesus said, what you've done in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the rooftop. And we thank God that it was just a foretaste and that he patiently bears with us and that Ananias and Sapphira really highlight the mercy of God that is regularly extended to the rest of us, that our dishonesty and our idolatry doesn't produce the same result that it did in them. Tom Wright comments on this passage, though this might be a terrifying story for us. If we took the underlying message of Ananias and Sapphira more seriously, we might just expect to see more of the other bits of Acts, the bits we prefer, coming true in our communities as well. I wonder if there is something in your heart that's grieving the Holy Spirit. This passage comes to us from God I believe, not at the end of a scowling face and a pointing finger, not with a sense of condemnation, but with a sense of invitation. Not condemnation, but invitation. And what we think is a pointing, accusing finger, we find actually turns out to be an outstretched, nail-pierced hand, extended to us with a sense of welcome, an invitation, beckoning, to come to God in simple and honest confession, to be real with ourselves, with others and with God, to experience the forgiveness and the freedom that we find in the presence of one who knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us more than we could dare to imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you that we don't have to pretend with you. You know everything about us. 
you're the one we can be completely honest with. You know our hearts, how we try to talk ourselves up, how we try to appear to one another better than we actually are. Thank you for the reminder of that reality in this passage. And as the passage reads us, we pray, God, that you might forgive us for those times. That we're not only lying to others, but also to you. Thank you for the grace that allows us to experience your justice and your mercy perfectly balanced and mediated through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Lord, we pray that we might all have our eyes increasingly open to see and understand just how much you love us and that your Holy Spirit might be poured out more and more into our lives, bringing his life to us, bringing your life to us that our churches may be built up and that we may be equipped and empowered, but also refined. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We pray in Jesus' name.